The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 8, Chapters 4 and 5. Condemned for murder, Esmeralda is forced to descend through the stories of an underground prison, like Dante's Circles of Hell, until she arrives at the one reserved in Dante's imagining for Satan, and here for those sentenced to death. It is a dungeon hole, deprived of light, air, life, hope. I found a heartbreaking illustration of this in my book that I'll share in the Facebook group. Buried in her prison cell, she lies there, cold as death, crushed beneath her chains, motionless, breathless, and beyond all suffering. Everything she had known becomes like a distant dream, or nightmare, of some remote world. In her dark, miserable, soundless dungeon, everything becomes mingled, vague, and indistinguishable. Day and night, sleeping and waking, the passage of time. Quote, Never did living creature pierce so far into the realm of nothingness. Unquote. The only interruptions to this void are the twice-daily opening of the trap-door when the jailer brings her a crust of black bread, the regular sound of a drop of water falling from the moldy stones of the roof to the pool of water beside her, and the sensation of something crawling over her foot and arm. Then, one day, the iron door creaks, the trap-door grates on its hinges, and a mysterious hooded man is led into the room, the door closed behind him. In a voice that makes Esmeralda tremble, he asks whether she is prepared to die. When she asks how soon, and he says, tomorrow, she regrets only that she has to wait such a very long time. Deploring her miserable conditions, living with no light, no fire, in the water, he offers her his arm and tells her to follow him. His touch feels to her like the icy hand of death, and she asks, Who are you? When he throws back his hood, she sees the evil face that has so long haunted her, the eyes she had last seen sparkle beside a dagger. The appearance of this figure suddenly recalls to her mind, distinct and terrible, every detail of her mournful adventure. She crouches down in terror as he hovers over her, gazing upon her like a predatory bird on his prey. Looking on him with horror, she cries out for an explanation of why he has so long pursued, threatened, and terrified her, why he killed her beloved Phoebus why he hates her so much. And he gives her a long, dark, confessional, and soul-bearing answer, one that begins with the disturbing declaration that he loves her. To summarize Frollo's confession is to do Hugo an injustice, but I'll do my best. The devilishness of Claude Frollo is, unquestionably, in the details. He begins by saying that before he met her, he was happy, for he was proud, chaste, pure, with no other mistress than science. What temptation he felt could be stifled with prayer, study, fasting, and monastic mortifications. The devil was easily conquered. Then 
he saw Esmeralda dancing in the square, a spectacle too dazzling for mere mortal eyes. Her beauty was so resplendent that it, quote, stood out like something luminous even in the very light of the sun itself, unquote. He found himself hopelessly intoxicated and felt himself overtaken by fate. A creature of such superhuman beauty, he concluded, was not made of common clay. She could only be an angel or a demon. And then, seeing beside her that devilish beast, the little goat, there was no longer any doubt. She had come from hell. Her singing and dancing worked their mysterious charm over him. All the pious and penitent feelings that should have waked in his soul slumbered, and he felt something overtake him which he could not escape. From that day on, he was unable to rid himself of her. Science becomes empty when the head is filled with frantic passion. Piety becomes impossible when upon your breviary you see the image of a beautiful gypsy's dancing feet. He sought her out a thousand times, hoping to dispel the ideal image which he had formed of her, and becoming instead more charmed, desperate, and bewitched. Driven to desperation, he decided to try the remedy of Bruno Dast, who, enchanted by a sorceress, had her burned to death and was cured. He banished Esmeralda from the square. She paid no heed to the prohibition. He tried to carry her off. She was rescued. He denounced her to the judges, vaguely imagining that in prison he would possess her as she had so long possessed him. Yet he still hesitated and might have turned back. But chance delivered her over to the terrible wheels of the machine he had constructed. He heard one day a man whose eyes were full of passion pronounce her name. From then on, they all, he says, became victims of the inexplicable caprice of fate. He then suffered through her trial and the unforeseen misery of her torture. At the shriek which she uttered, he plunged a dagger into his own breast. Had she shrieked again, he would have pierced his heart. Claude Frollo ends his explanation with a wild plea for her to pity him, a plea that should be read, pondered, poured over, word by careful word, to appreciate its sublime hideousness. A plea that ends with the desperate, panting, sinister entreaty, quote, Mercy, girl, one moment's truce. Cast a handful of ashes on the coals. Wipe away, I conjure you, the big drops of sweat that trickle from my brow. Child, torture me with one hand, but caress me with the other. Unquote. And he offers to follow her into hell. She looks at him, cold and pitiless, and asks only, What has become of my Phoebus? He is dead, Claude Frollo cries, and she replies, Dead? Then why do you talk to me of living? Speaking more to himself, he says, He must indeed be dead. The blade entered very deeply. I think I touched his heart with the point. 
in response to which she throws herself upon him and pushes him towards the stairs with supernatural strength. He goes out through the door, stopping only to turn back and say, with a gasp of rage and despair, I tell you, he is dead. We then move from one dark, miserable cell to another, as we join the old recluse in the Torolande on a day when her ever-present grief burst forth with even greater violence than usual. Again, this should be read with painstaking and inescapably pained attention. Reading it aloud, I cried through the whole thing. In heart-wrenching and bone-shaking terms, she implores God to restore her daughter to her, even for a day, an hour, a single instant. Quote, Oh, if I could only once, once more, just once more, put this shoe on her pretty little rosy foot, I would die, kind virgin, blessing you. Unquote. Outside her window, a ladder has been erected close to the gallows, and a hangman's assistant arranges the chains. Seeing a priest glancing wildly and gloomily at the gibbet, she asks who is to be hanged. At the news that it is to be a gypsy, she bursts into a hyena-like laugh. She hates all gypsies for stealing and devouring her child, and in doing so, eating her heart. She hates one above them all, because she is about the age that her daughter would have been, the very girl whose death she is about to witness. Esmeralda The second of my posts was called Claude Frollo. In a Hugo-esque universe, the characters encounter situations so grand, conflicts so harrowing, and emotions so profound that I constantly think, how on earth will Hugo put this into words? And he always surpasses my highest expectations. How do you put into words a priest's efforts to purify himself of sinful thoughts with the single-minded pursuit of science? With images of vapors and sunbeams and tranquil light like this, quote, I had only to open a book and all the impure vapors of my brain were banished by the glorious sunbeams of science. In a few moments I felt the gross things of earth fly away, and I was once more calm and serene, bathed in the tranquil light of eternal truth." Unquote. How do you explain the pleasure he finds in his descent to hell, as he succumbs to her spell and surrenders his soul? by likening it to a man looking forward to the approach of death as he slowly freezes, like this, quote, I believe so still. However, the charm worked little by little. Your dance went round and round in my brain. I felt the mysterious spell acting within me. All which should have waked slumbered in my soul, and, like men perishing in the snow, I found pleasure in the approach of this slumber. Unquote. How do you capture the way in which this priest embraces his sin, giving himself over to it with evil abandonment? By describing the rapture of extreme guilt. 
like this, quote, When a man does wrong, he should do all the wrong he can. It is madness to stop halfway in a crime. The extremity of guilt has its raptures of joy, unquote. How do you describe the depths of his dark despair? By explaining how much worse than being inside a dungeon it is to have a dungeon inside you. Quote, You are cold. The darkness blinds you. The dungeon wraps you round. But perhaps you have still some ray of light in your innermost soul, were it but your childish love for that empty man who played with your heart while I have a dungeon in me. Within me all is winter, ice, despair. My soul is full of darkness. Unquote. And how do you explain the magnitude of his epic but perverse and wicked love? With breathtaking, awe-inspiring, spine-chilling poetry like this, Quote, Oh, to love a woman! to be a priest, to be abhorred, to love her with all the strength of your soul, to feel that you would give your blood, your life, your reputation, your salvation, immortality and eternity, this life and the next, for the least of her smiles, to regret that you are not a king, a genius, an emperor, an archangel, a god, to place at her feet a grander slave. Unquote. I've pointed out that Hugo often uses the word ineffable, which means too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. That is ironic, because it seems that for him, nothing is. The last of my posts was called Higher Than God, Part 2. In my discussion of Hugo's 93, I shared the following thought under a post titled Higher Than God. I love literature in which characters take their values seriously, very seriously. Recently, I noticed that some of my favorite scenes from literature have something in common. To show just how seriously a character devotes himself to his values, the author will have him express that devotion in what is conventionally regarded as the highest possible moral terms. In some form, he will have him place that value above God. In that post, I gave examples from The Miracle Worker and Cyrano de Bergerac, as well as 93. But no author's novels are more densely packed with epically value-driven characters than Hugo's. So, in the last two chapters of Notre Dame de Paris alone, I encountered five more examples of this device. First, in Claude Frollo's declaration of his love for Esmeralda, a love so profound that this priest has now pledged his soul to her rather than to God. We see him place her above God in his description of her beauty. Quote, I heard the sound of tambourine and music. Vexed at being thus disturbed in my reverie, I looked out. What I saw was seen by many others as well, and yet it was not a spectacle for mere mortal eyes. There, in the middle of the pavement, it was noon, the sun shone brightly, a creature was dancing. 
a creature so beautiful that God would have preferred her to the Virgin, and so chosen her to be his mother, and would have wished to be born of her had she existed when he was made man." Unquote. And again, in his determination to follow her into hell, quote, The hell where you are will be paradise to me. The sight of you is more blissful than that of God. Unquote. And in his resolution that he will trade his immortal soul for her smile, quote, To feel that you would give your blood, your life, your reputation, your salvation, immortality and eternity, this life and the next, for the least of her smiles. Unquote. Then we see this device again in the old recluse's violent grief. As she rails against the heavens for giving her a child, only to take it away. Quote, Perhaps you did not know that our children are a part of ourselves, and that a mother who loses her child can no longer believe in God. Unquote. And, again, in her refusal to find consolation that her baby might be in heaven, and the rage against God that means she will never join her there. Quote, what do I care if she is in paradise? I don't want an angel. I want my child. I am a lioness roaring for my cub. Oh, I will writhe upon the ground. I will beat my forehead against the stones, and I will be forever damned. I will curse you, Lord, if you keep my child from me. What? Then it is indeed true I shall never see her again, not even in heaven, for I shall never go there. Unquote. For those of you who read Tennyson's Rizpah, which is available in the Read With Me app, this might recall a line from it. Quote, and if he be lost, but to save my soul, that is all your desire? Do you think that I care for my soul if my boy be gone to the fire? Unquote. Ineffable, inexorable, ruthless, formidable. These are all common words in the Hugo lexicon, because the character's devotion to their values seems to know no bounds transcending everything. Even God, 